or corner pebble. So Jess is up the back there. Um, if you've got, there you go, or running to him or to her. Um, and if you'd like to open your corner posts or your Bibles, we're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 1. And I'm going to be reading um, through to chapter 12, verse 10. If you're joining with us this morning and you're visiting with us or you're here for the first time, a very special welcome. It's great to have you with us. Uh, and we hope and trust and pray that God blesses you through his word. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 1, and this is God's word. I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. And we have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of the light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerades as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. 
I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea and in danger from false brothers. I have laboured and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. 
Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think of me more than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Lord, you are the true and living God the creator, sustainer, judge and saviour of this world. And on this, the day in the week where you broke the power of death once and for all through your resurrection, on this, the Lord's day, we come and we sit quietly as Mary did at your feet. Help us to resist the temptation that Martha had given into of busily running around thinking of all the things that needed to be done when there was only one thing that was needed. And that was to listen to your voice. Lord, so quiet in our hearts now that you would block out the distractions of the past week this day, and maybe even the worries of this coming week, Lord. Help us to rest in you. Like a weaned child at its mother's breast, Lord, may we wean our soul on you. Lord, we pray that both what I say and how I say it would bring you glory and would bring each and every one of us edification. We commit this time into your hands now. We ask for your blessing. And we look for it confidently, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As I shared with you last week, and if you're just joining with us for the first time, we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians. The Lord, I think, has been really powerfully reminding me that we are in a massive spiritual war. I think we live in one of the most beautiful parts in all the world. And yet, there is a cosmic battle going on for our souls. That battle is not merely against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. 
forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Because we have an unseen enemy who is trying to tempt, distract, and stumble us from faithfully following Christ. This is a truth that has come up repeatedly for us as we've made our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. And it's something that we're continually exhorted to watch out for and to be prepared. Indeed, it's a battle that we will continue to face till our life's end. As you would have just seen from our Bible reading, this is also something that the Apostle Paul now in his letter addresses head on. And he makes, it's a long Bible reading, but I think there is really three main points. The first is from verses 1 to 15. And it's about the reality of the work of the devil through false teachers or those whom I simply refer to as snakes. Tragically, this has always been a danger for believers. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, the presence of Satan was there. And he has always been deadly deceptive. Twisting the truths of God's word to make it say something that it doesn't, and so lead us away from God. Satan's approach is to always say, did God really say? It's always to make us question the accuracy and the goodness of God's word. But you know what makes Satan's approach so dangerous? It's that he often tries to present himself to us as the real thing. As Paul says in verse 14, it's that he masquerades as an angel of light. You see, Satan is not stupid. He's not going to come to us in obvious and shocking ways. We have to get out of our minds, you know, this ugly and grotesque demon spewing forth blasphemous words. You know, like he's wearing a little red jumpsuit with a pitchfork and a spiky tail. That was something that Christians created in the Middle Ages to mock him, to show that Christians didn't need to be fearful of him. Now, don't get me wrong, that is uh, the devil's underlying nature. But the devil knows that if he appeared to us in any of those true forms, then we would recognise and we would resist his approach in an instant, wouldn't we? What's his strategy then? It's to appear like a true servant of God or like an evangelical Christian. just a little more sympathetic or tolerant, you know, than those fundamentalist types that believe the Bible, that know what God's word actually says. The principal of my Bible college that I did, the bulk of my training at in Sydney, Moore College, the principal at the time was Peter Jensen, and he said to us one day something I've never forgot. He said, 
Gentlemen, I want you to remember that your greatest enemy that you're going to come across are not liberal theologians. Their arguments are weak. You'll see through them in an instant. He said, no, the ones you really have to watch out for are soft evangelicals. Those that will appear just like you and call you brother, but believe a different gospel. Those that, if I can put this in a pejorative way, are lacking a spine, or what we might call as evangelifish. <laughs> but as a father relating to his unmarried daughter, Paul relates to the Christians at Corinth like this. He wants to present them as a pure virgin to Christ. And so just take a look again at what Paul says in verses 3 to 4. Because this is the danger we believers constantly face no matter what day or age that we live in. Paul says in verse 3, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I only wish we'd had the Bible reading this morning in the Old Testament from um, Genesis chapter 3, where we read about actually what happened there. How Satan completely inverts the created order. So here's God putting man in the garden with the woman as his helper, who both have lordship over all of the created animals and beings and what does satan do he flips it the serpent becomes the king and he approaches the woman to deceive the man who then rebels against god together but satan's greatest temptation at the very heart of his deception is this he says to eve did god really say you shall not eat from any from from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Paul says, for if someone comes to you, and this is again the temptation that we face, just as in the garden with Eve, so we face this same temptation. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus, other than the Jesus we preached, see, they're going to still preach Jesus, it's just a different Jesus. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, see, there is still a spiritual experience, there's still a spiritual reality. It's just a false one. Or if you receive a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Well, they mentioned Jesus. Well, I had a spiritual experience. But they talked about the gospel. It's just that it's another gospel and a different spirit and another Jesus. Because Satan loves to counterfeit. You see, false teachers don't necessarily deny Jesus or the work of the Spirit or even the language of the gospel. They simply distort what each one of those things mean. They change the definition or meaning into something completely different while outwardly appearing to be the same, to be acceptable so that you'll receive it. When I first moved to Tassie, <laughs> I was struck by how many signs there are on the bushwalking trails to beware of snakes. 
For some reason or other, I lived in ignorance and I didn't think that Tasmania had any snakes. <laughs> what I quickly learnt, though, that there are snakes in Tasmania and every single one of them is poisonous. <laughs> what we have to watch out for, though, as believers, is the serpent's cunning to make us stumble and fall in our relationship with God. We almost need, don't we, a sign somewhere at church, watch out for snakes. Maybe you should put that on the the door as we leave. Watch out for snakes. Satan's goal is to destroy our witness and divide our fellowship. Which is all the more reason why we should make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because as the Lord Jesus says, the devil comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The second point, or the second function, or second section rather, functions as something of a corrective to this and it outlines what a true servant of God looks like. So you have, on the one hand, snakes, on the other hand, saints. Paul does something really counterintuitive in this section by turning everything upside down. You see, the false teachers or the so-called super apostles, they continually boasted about their abilities or their success. And in particular, they took great pride in all the things that they were strong in, particularly their spiritual experiences. They're the type of leaders who will tell you about the conferences that they have preached at and the number of people that, they were, that were there, the books that they have written, the number of churches they have planted, the academic degrees they have attained. Not that any of these things are wrong in and of themselves. It's good to plant churches. It's good to speak at conferences. It's definitely good to go to Bible college. It's just that this is what they boasted in. The Apostle Paul says, though, okay, if these are the type of things that people are oppressed by, let me compare with them in boasting, except he doesn't. At least not in the way you would have expected. Because just as Paul doesn't fight with the weapons of this world, so, he, so too he doesn't boast in the things of this world either. That is, he doesn't talk about power or influence, or prestige. Instead, he talks about weakness and he talks about suffering. He tells them about how often he's been flogged and beaten and stoned. Over and over and over again, you notice this. He talks about how he's in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from his own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from false brothers. He's the original danger man. in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. Rather than tell about how influential and successful he was, he tells them about how often he has gone without food or clothing or sleep. Can you imagine boasting in that? The boasting that he engages is is completely upside down because the boasting that the super apostles were guilty of doing was completely antithetical to the message of the gospel. You see, at the heart of the gospel is the truth 
that the Lord God Almighty has suffered in our place. We are the only religion on earth that worships a God who is suffering. Because we believe, don't we? The good news is that Jesus, although being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, that that emptied himself, but made himself nothing. He emptied himself of all power. He emptied himself of all influence. He emptied himself of all prestige. And he became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Why? Because that's where he was taking the punishment that you and I deserved. You see, our boasting is in his humiliation. And there is obviously no glory or honour in being crucified. At least not from a worldly point of view. Crucifixion in the first century was seen as so abhorrent, it was not mentioned, even the term in polite society. It was the unspeakable punishment. From the world's perspective, it was, it was the epitome of foolishness and weakness. In fact, it was seen as the greatest invention of torture and death by capital punishment the world has ever seen. The Romans had designed this to extract every ounce of suffering from a person before they die. I don't want to go into too much graphic detail, but it wasn't from blood loss, it was from suffocation. So when Jesus died, he literally had to be pushing himself off nails so that he could take breaths. That's why to quicken his death, they broke his, they, they thought they would break his legs, although they didn't need to because he'd already died. But it's that horrific execution that is the game changer for the world and our relationship with God. As we know from God's perspective, it was through that means, that act of foolishness, that act of shame, that act of weakness that he reconciles us to the Father. Paul says back in verse 21 of chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. Jesus who had no sin becomes sin for us, the sinful ones, so that when we trust in him, we are reconciled. As Michael said earlier, we are justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Now, can you appreciate how God and Paul have turned everything upside down? Because I wouldn't have thought of saving anybody that way. I would have th- thought of sending somebody like Superman or Wonder Woman or somebody with great powers. I would not have expected them to die, to be executed in humiliation and shame. In verses 32 to 33, Paul gives us a powerful example of his own weakness because the gospel servant looks like the gospel saviour that he preaches. In particular, he says that when he was in Damascus, he, was, uh, he escaped by being lowered down in a basket from a window in the wall. Now, we might think today, oh, that was pretty sneaky. That was pretty clever. In the first century, it was anything but. 
that would have been viewed as the ultimate act of weakness and cowardice and therefore something that you would be deeply ashamed of. You see, the Romans had this military prize called the Corona Murialis or the walled crown. It was the ancient equivalent to our Victoria Cross or Medal of Honour. And it basically awarded the highest honours for the soldier that committed the ultimate act of bravery, courage and strength. And it was given to the man who first scaled the wall because it was the most dangerous thing on earth to do. Once again, Paul turns this upside down and he says, rather than him being the first guy over the wall, he was actually the first guy to get lowered from the wall secretly, hidden in a basket so as not to be captured. Most people in the first century, having read this, would have scoffed and they would have mocked. (laughs) You call yourself a servant of God? You're a coward. You're weak. God's apostle, though, recounts his experience as something he boasted in. Because he was following the way of the cross. He was boasting in his weakness because he followed in the footsteps of Jesus. Remember what Satan tried to tempt Jesus with at the very beginning of his ministry? Bow down and worship me, Satan says, and I will give you all the kingdoms of earth. Don't go to the cross. Don't go through suffering. Don't go through shame. Don't go through insults. Don't go through hardship. Don't be tortured and mutilated and killed. Worship me now and it can all be yours. Jesus says, no, I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to follow the way of humiliation and suffering. Now, I think this continues to be precisely how it is for us when we follow Christ today. We shouldn't necessarily expect accolades or applause or awards. The Lord Jesus actually says in Luke's Gospel, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for that is how they treated the false prophets. You see, false prophets tell you what the world wants you to hear. That's why the world loves them. Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, that's okay. Just keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. The true servant of God then is the one who suffers for the gospel of Christ. For that is how Christ himself was first treated. And those who follow him will be treated in the same way as him. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. False teachers then find their reward in this world. 
here's the key. True teachers find their reward in the next. False teachers find their reward in this world. True teachers find their reward in the next. Remember what we read at the end of Hebrews chapter 11 about the great household of faith? All those brothers and sisters, those great and godly believers of the past who endured all kinds of sufferings and trials and setbacks. They were tortured. They were jeered. They were arrested. They were put in prison. They were physically assaulted and put to death. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. And then the Bible says the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. What a great reminder that very rarely, if ever, do true servants of God receive any kind of reward in the here and now. I heard of a missionary once who had spent years and years and years serving in some far-flung, obscure setting. It was very difficult, lots of setbacks. But he'd served the Lord faithfully, seen fruit. But, you know, nothing that you would have, if I told you his name, you wouldn't have heard about it. You wouldn't have heard about him. And he was there at the airport and on the same flight as him was some famous cricketer or something. And everybody was coming to celebrate this great cricketer and, and how wonderful it was. And, and he just thought, he just said, I just felt so dejected. I'd spent my life serving God and I thought, wow, Lord. And here I was and there was only one or two people to meet me at the airport. He said, this is it. And he said, God just spoke into his heart very clearly and he said, ah, but you're not home yet. This is all the applause, reward paid in full for this cricketer. But you're not home. Just wait. The end of Hebrews 11 we read, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. None. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. All of which leads to the third and final point. And that has to do with sufficiency in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 12. And can I say, this is where it all comes together, I think, for us today. In the light of what we've just seen from chapter 11, a question that we've got to ask ourselves, and it's a really real question, right? Why does the Lord allow evil to exist in the world? Let me just say that again so you really feel the weight of this question. Why does the Lord God Almighty allow evil to exist in this world? It's a huge question and what Paul goes on to say in chapter 12 doesn't give you everything but it goes a long way to answering it. Because Paul talks about how three times he pleads with the Lord for this thorn in the flesh to be removed. But the Lord says to him, sorry, you didn't have enough faith. No, that's all he said at all. Paul had faith. The Lord says no, and he gives him this answer. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
There's a lot of debate as to what Paul's thorn in the flesh actually was. Some think that it was a physical thing, like poor eyesight. <laughs> Others, I think, get so far-fetched that they go, oh, is his mother-in-law? <laughs> but I think there's a strong possibility that in context it was the false teachers who were giving him so much trouble and pain. Now, if you were paying careful attention, you would have seen that we get a really similar example of this in Ezekiel chapter 28. Significantly, in the passage in context, I think, also refers to the fall of Satan. That he was one of the chief angels of God, but in his pride, in his boasting, let the reader understand, he fell. But remember how later on in, chapter, uh, in the chapter, Ezekiel says this, No longer will the people of Israel have malicious neighbours who are painful briars and sharp thorns. Israel's enemies are described here in exactly the same way. The Apostle Paul had already referred to the false teachers as satanic angels, literally messengers. Back in chapter 11, remember? As Paul says in verse 14, Satan himself masquerades as an angel, a messenger of light. So in the context of Paul's letter, it would make complete sense, I think, for this thorn in the flesh to be taken this way. The false teachers that had given him so much grief and that he's had to deal with all throughout this letter these messengers of Satan, these workers of evil, are under God's sovereign hand. Both Israel's enemies and those who are opposing the Apostle Paul then are described in the same way. They're thorns in the flesh. That doesn't mean, though, there's not wider application to the, in other kinds of ways. You know, the Lord may put a thorn in your flesh of a prolonged illness or a work difficulty or a relationship to make us depend on him more. Because when you are weak, then he is strong. Whatever it is, the lesson we need to learn, though, is that God's power is only made perfect in weakness. It's a scary prayer to ask for more of God's power because he'll give it to you but only as he slays you in your own strength. Indeed, we should take to heart this truth so deeply that we come to the point, I think, where Paul says, can you see this, that you delight in your weaknesses. <laughs> you delight in hardships, in insults, in persecutions, in whatever thought it is, I delight. It's fantastic. Bring it on. Because that's when God's power is made manifest. That's when he strengthens you. That's when he comforts you. Not, now, I don't say this because we're somehow being masochistic or we want to suffer per se. But it's simply knowing this. If you... If you know the Bible and you know how sovereign God is and you know how good he is and you know how loving he is, then nothing at all is wasted in God's economy. Everything is designed for your good. 
Everything is designed so that you rely on him and his strength. And you know, it's those times when you're feeling the weakest, where God pours out his goodness and his grace. Amen. Amen. You see, Paul um, could have taken pride and boasted in his amazing spiritual experiences. That's what the super apostles were doing. And quite frankly, I think that's what I would have done too. I think verses 1 to 6 of chapter 12 are actually talking about what happened to Paul. He refers to himself as the third person as if it's somebody else. But it's actually him. Even in this self-conscious parody of what the false teachers were doing, though, he couldn't bring himself to boast about it. He'd had these incredible spiritual experiences where he was lifted up into heaven and saw things that were not legitimate for others to actually relay. Although, isn't that the irony? That's exactly what false teachers do. False teachers or super apostles today, they love to tell you about all the spiritual experiences they've had. They love to tell you about the inexpressible things. And Paul's going, yeah, that's not actually legit. You shouldn't be doing that. Paul could have boasted in those kinds of spiritual experiences, but he didn't. Instead, he recounts to us, again, his weakness. He tells us about all of the things that the world count uh, as being failures because his goal, his goal is this. Please hear this. His goal is to point to Christ to glorify him and to receive his strength. But if you boast in all of those things of the world, well, you can be sure that's inverted. The glory is going to you. It's all about your strength. Now, this all sounds really simple and easy, but it's a really difficult thing to have applied to your life. So let me do what Paul has been doing and flip what I've been saying upside down. In verse 6 of chapter 11, Paul says about not being a trained speaker. The verse literally translated reads as somebody who is unskilled in words or in Greek, someone who is an idiot. It's a striking expression and probably gets to the heart of what the super apostles were accusing him of. They claimed he was a fool because he was untrained, he was unskilled in the art of rhetoric. But as we've been seeing, Paul flips that upside down and he shows the Corinthians a more spiritually authentic gospel way of speaking. And he shows that by their boasting, they are the ones who are actually acting as fools. Now, can I put this diplomatically? Would you like to be a complete fool? No one does. But we are when we do three things. Number one, if you want to be a complete fool, then simply reject Jesus. Don't respond to who he is or what he's done, but continue to live life on your own terms. As we've seen from God's word this morning, to do that would be completely foolish. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ has been speaking to us all this morning through his word. And if we're truly wise, then we'll humble ourselves and we'll listen to what he says. What the devil will try to do is what he did to Eve. 
He'll make you question what was said this morning, reject Jesus, and depend upon your own wisdom and strength. Or as my mum used to say, the theme song of hell, if you're old enough, you'll remember the tune, is I did it my way. Indeed, that's the very original temptation he used in, with Eve in the garden. She saw that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was what? Desirable for gaining wisdom. But as we all know, in trying to be wise, she actually became a fool. Second, if you want to be a fool, then allow yourself to be impressed by success. You know, the showiness of people who boast about what they've done. Even, or I probably should say, especially church leaders can be guilty of this. Because we all long to be liked and we all long to receive the uh, approval of others, especially the world. But we have to keep on being wary and even rejecting that though because the way of the cross is completely different. Following Jesus often means that you face opposition and hostility from the world. Are you prepared for that? We need to keep on following the Lord, though, even if it means that we are led to become more and more obscure. Because it's not about power or influence. It's about faithfulness to Christ and doing God's will to the glory of his name. Thirdly and finally, if you want to be a complete fool, then rely on yourself and your own strength. Do it all in your own power so that the glory goes to you. This is what makes spending time in prayer so difficult, isn't it? It's because it's just so humbling and weak. You can't really boast in prayer, because it's not about you. Actually, we can boast by praying for really, really long periods of time or by repeating the same kind of liturgical formulas over and over again, But genuine prayer is not like that. That's pagan prayer. Christian prayer is about emptying ourselves where we entrust the Lord with everything. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. That's what we sing. It's where we, when we get up off our knees, we rely on him for grace. We say, well, okay, Lord, it's all over to you. What that looks like in practice, friends, is that we walk by faith and not by sight. Can I just say, the Lord doesn't reveal to us what's going to happen in your life next. He only shows you the next step of obedience you need to take. Are you feeling broken? Are you feeling weak? The Lord hasn't left you or forsaken you. But rather he wants you to reach out to him for strength. To rely and depend on him rather than yourself. Put your trust in him. And boast in him. Boast in the Lord and that you know and understand him. Boast in the Lord that he loves you 
that he cares for you, that he provides for you, and that he'll always comfort you. Boast in the Lord and say, as the Apostle Paul did, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Ah, oh, Lord and Heavenly Father, we are so humbled by your word, Lord, and just so overawed by your truth. How awesome you are. How righteous are all your ways. How true is your word. Lord, in your light we see light. Lord, it is just such a beautiful thing because in your word we see what is true and in so doing we see all the falsehoods of the devil. Oh Lord, forgive us for relying on our own strength. You've slain our pride this morning, Lord, as we've looked at your word. It's so much wiser than we could ever be. Lord, give us the grace to boast in our weaknesses. Give us, Lord, the grace to know your strength, to the praise and glory of your name. Amen. In response to what we've heard, we're going to sing uh, a song.